Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is episode number 70 of the Tartan Talks podcast. And joining us from high up in the Rocky Mountains is Kevin Atkinson. This is a fun conversation. We touch on a number of topics, including how Kevin incorporates stunning views like the ones he sees every day in the golf designs, why Kevin is a big believer in the power of the sketch, creativity involved in short courses, and also Kevin's experiences uh, at Red Rocks Country Club, where not only is the club one of his clients, it also happens to be his home and the place where he is a member. But before we get going with Kevin, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad they're on board, and we're glad that Kevin was able to take time to join us. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. And the, the first question I have here is that I heard that there was a little golf match played in California between Team Atkinson and Team Staples. For those that listen to Tartan Talks, Andy was our first guest way back when. Who won the match, Kevin, and how much fun was the match? Oh, my gosh. The match was so much fun, and it made it so much better that Team Atkinson just took Team Staples the town we uh, we didn't just win we won big so that was like really fun for me andy and i are really good friends we actually collaborate a little bit together and uh we have a great relationship um but we are certainly competitive on the course and and uh, always have our own little matches at our asgca events and they're close so it, it was fun we had a collection of great great clients and superintendents that that joined us, and uh, we just had a, good, had a great time. But Team Atkinson definitely came out on top. I've noticed that you have collaborated with architects in the past on projects, and you're even collaborating with some now. What type of um, – I know it's a competitive business, but what type of relationships do you have with your, your fellow ASGCA members, and uh, how does it help when you, you can involve multiple ones in the projects? sometimes yeah that's a good question um i think that's one of the benefits of the asgca while we all do compete against each other you do form uh friendships with people and and like-minded architects or just or just inspiration amongst each other and uh there are just there are all kinds of opportunities to work with your fellow competitors and i've done that i have done that quite a bit uh jeff brower uh, and i were working on something and uh, for the University of Nebraska and, and Lincoln, uh, Andy Staples on a number of projects, Tom Clark currently in, uh, in Oklahoma, uh, Forrest Fesler, who he wasn't a, in the American Society of Golf Course Architects, but he was Mike Strantz's partner. He and I did a lot of things together. And then, of course, I had a, I had a longtime partner, business partner, Rick Phelps, that I worked with. Uh, that I just recently, I just recent, we just recently decided to uh, go our separate ways, but it was nothing but positive, and I have nothing but respect for for Rick. So that um, I've worked with a lot of different golf architects over the years, for sure. Yeah, Force Fesler unfortunately passed away not too long ago. He uh, was quite the personality, from what I understand, and quite the architect. Describe your work with him, especially at Monterey Peninsula Country Club, and what did you learn learn from him? Oh, man, uh, that's a choke-up moment for sure. Forrest became such a good friend of mine, and uh, I was I was with him, oh, probably in his house not more than a couple of days before he passed away with he and his wife. And yeah, he, the, he, he was, he had an incredible eye for golf, 
and an incredible eye for architecture as well. Obviously, for those that don't know the story of Forrest, you know, he he played on the PGA Tour for 13 years, and he was probably most known for wearing the shorts at a wearing shorts at a U.S. Open um, as a as a kind of mini protest to try to help the caddies not have to wear their hot jumpsuits in the hot weather. So anyway, that got all kinds of news, obviously. But Forrest, uh, Forrest, I out on the golf course, especially you know we uh, the the projects we ended up working on were primarily his old partner, uh, Mike Strance's project. And the one we did the most work was Monterey Peninsula Country Club, the shore course. And walking around with him uh, felt like it was an encyclopedia of knowledge into what he had learned or worked with with Mike Strance. And so I just I just walked and listened a lot and learned. Um, I, I've, I had the utmost respect for Mike since the beginning of my career back in the mid-'90s. Uh, always was a fan of his of his boldness and his uh, the shapes that he was able to create and his landforms and his art. His art is incredible. Maybe the best golf course architect artist that will ever live. I mean, he was phenomenal. But walking around and uh, with Forrest, we would we would just talk about what Mike's visions were, whether it was bunker shapes or uh, the busyness of lines on the on when you edge of bunkers and and the positives and negatives of that the ground game uh how how they tried to create like hidden pins and and kind of this uh the unveiling of the golf hole as you play it as a as a bit of an adventure as you go through the hole no no better adventure than tobacco road obviously Th- that was just such an incredible experience uh to spend time with him and the whole point at Monterey Peninsula uh, Country Club was uh, to create a plan to finish Mike's finish Mike's dream. So, uh, Forrest, uh, that for those that, that that don't know, that was Mike's last project, and um, he passed away uh, before that project was complete. And, uh, and so, when Forrest would go around it. Oftentimes he would get emotional, even though it had been years, but it was just a soft spot in his heart for sure. If I'm not mistaken, the shore course at Monterey Peninsula Country Club is one of the three courses used for the Pebble Beach Pro-Am on the PGA Tour, right, Kevin? It is, yep. It's on TV every year. And w- sure it just was on TV re- here recently. What do you think when you flip on the TV and see it? What goes through your mind? It brings back a lot of great memories. Um what goes through my mind is just the <laughs> the pure joy it was just being on those grounds. Um, I I remember we were there's the eleventh hole is probably one of their most picturesque holes, the par three that is an elevated tee shot looking down, looking down, and you can see you can see Cypress in the background, and you can see all of the Pacific Ocean. It's just phenomenal how beautiful it is, and right next to that is a little halfway house for their members and it it's got to be the best halfway house in all of golf. I mean, you you sit in that halfway house with the most picturesque views that you could ever imagine. And we were working on um adjacent holes right around there, number 11, uh n- number 10, um and and number uh number 7 was nearby. And so I would I, I kind of, as the guys were working out in the field, I also kind of set up my laptop in that little halfway house and then I would be, you know, doing some sketching or doing some working, uh, with the, with the view 
in the background and I'll never forget that. I'm like, this, this office is the best office ever. And so when it's on TV and you see those capturing views, it brings me back to those times with Forrest and, and just walking the ground and listening to, listening to him talk and us share ideas about how, how can we complete Mike's vision out here to, to get the last remaining things that just didn't get done the first go around. You, you bring up a great point about views and you live and do a lot of work in the Mountain West, which is one of the most scenic parts of the country. How, how do you as a golf course architect work views into your design and how important is it to get those right when you're routing a golf course or renovating a golf course? Well, it's a good one. Uh, yeah, obviously working in the Rocky Mountains, the, the views are stunning in every direction. Um, uh, for the most part. And yeah, when you have a 14er in the background or a snow-capped peak or, um, and it's, uh, maybe it's the namesake for the golf course or maybe it's just a spectacular view. Um, yeah, you, you like to look at those views when you're playing the hole. So specifically when you're routing a course and they don't really capture the views, um, whether it's a new course or even a renovation, uh, I, I try to, I try to always show off the club's uh, most prized assets, and out in the out in the Rocky Mountains, oftentimes the most prized asset can be the surrounding views, or at least that's one of them. Depends on the site, obviously, but you want to you want to show off their best assets. My my home club uh, in the Denver Front Range, Red Rocks Country Club. Uh, we've tried to do that. That's been one of our calling cards. Is is always. Uh, remembering what our our best asset is and that's the beauty of our natural surrounds so in any it it might be golf architecture related it might not be golf architecture related it might just be exposing a beautiful rock outcropping or a view down a valley that's adjacent to a green while you're putting but if you can capture those experiences while you're playing golf um yeah that's you you want to do that i've never lived in one of those places kevin does it ever get old looking at those views do you ever become immune to them and just not even notice them that's funny you know when i uh when i first moved out to colorado I, i'm a nebraska boy born and raised i grew up in omaha so a flatlander right so i but i i loved the mountains and i had an addiction for the mountains as so many others do and when i first moved out to colorado i would have, i'd be golfing with some of my buddies and we'd just be playing uh, some golf course uh, in the Denver Front Range, and I asked him that exact question. I'm like, "Do you ever get tired of looking at this? It's just beautiful." Um, I'm now that was that was 1999. So what what is that? That's that's 23 years later. Um, I still think that every time that I'm out playing golf or on a hike or just when I wake up in the morning, just being around town. Yeah, no, the answer is no, that that beauty does not get old. Okay, we'll get back to the golf in a second, but give our listeners some travel advice. I go out west a lot with my wife. We hike all over the place. I know a lot of our other listeners, when they have time, go out west. What's the best national or state park in your part of the world? Which which one really sticks out to you? And I know there's probably a no-win answer to that question. There's no win answer. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you can't go wrong with national park up there uh, between grand lake and estes park mm-hmm. um that's that's close to the denver area it's uh for, yeah, for, for any listeners that want to come and travel and go to denver um i mean denver's a great city but then 
and it's easy access to get to to get to Rocky Mountain National Park. That that's a beautiful spot. That's one of my favorites for sure. Yeah, how did a Nebraskan end up in the Rocky Mountains? Explain your career journey and your route to where you are now. So, when I was I went to college at the University of Nebraska back uh, back when the University of Nebraska had a hell of a football team. Yeah, some of our listeners don't even remember that. <laughs> I know, it's, man. There's a there's a knife right to my heart. Oh my gosh, that, yeah, and that's so true. My my kids don't even know it, and I remind them, and they just roll their eyes at me. Yeah. Um. But uh, so I I'm a Nebraska guy. I went to the university, and then I. I, I tried to play for the University of Nebraska golf team, didn't make it. And, uh, oh, I probably went home and pouted to mom and dad, and, uh, you know, kind of, oh, poor me, uh, 18-year-old syndrome. And uh, flipped, But I was always into art and architecture. I was in architecture college, and I had this aha moment that somebody designs has to design golf courses. And so from that point on, I'm like, I want to be a golf course architect, and there just so happened in Lincoln, Nebraska, where the University of Nebraska is at, is uh, a company called Landscapes Unlimited, um, one of the premier golf course builders in the world. And um, they were much smaller back then. So I gave them a call. I thought they were golf architects. I didn't know. Um, I was 18. And uh, I got an opportunity to work with Landscapes Unlimited throughout college, building golf and working in the office. And then that opened up. Uh, opportunities to uh, to meet other golf architects and uh, Bill Kubley, the owner of Landscapes, was instrumental in helping introduce me to uh, different people in the industry, and that that ultimately got me a job. And I uh, landed out in the East Coast with Alt Clark and Associates. Tom Clark and Brian Alt were the owners of that company, and had a great experience out there for for uh, I was all, but I was only out there for four years. When I was in, I, I just missed. Ultimately, what it boiled down to is I missed home. I missed being close to my home, and I knew I always wanted to live in the mountains. So uh, that's where that's where I, I I was just pursuing to try to find that little last uh, bit of happiness in my life to, to try to find a place where I really wanted to live. I found an opportunity with Dick Phelps, um, his office uh, in Evergreen, Colorado. And I jumped at it. I jumped at you know what ultimately was hap- happiness for me and finding a finding a spot that I really wanted to live, and that was 23 years ago. So uh, I I just when I was in college I fell in love with the mountains and I always knew I wanted to live there and I guess uh, I guess I made that happen. Yeah, and here we are a few decades later, and you're working on a project with Tom Clark right now. Uh, how would you describe what you're doing in Oklahoma? Yeah, that's been a fun project, uh, kind of a reunion of Tom and myself um, from 20 plus years ago. Uh, it's for a, a client in uh, at a resort called Shangri-La. They have 27 holes of golf, and they sit on this big lake called Grand Lake, real pretty area. And they uh, they were building an 18 hole par three course on a on a piece of property that's got a lot of topography to it and a lot of interest to it so we're we're creating we're creating what i what i believe is going to be an incredibly dynamic and fun par three course um we're calling it the battlefield and we're uh the owner of the resort uh eddie gibbs is a 
collector of World War II memorabilia. Um, like he has a he has a you know, he has all kinds of historic pieces, but he just opened up a, a, another amenity at his resort called the Anchor, and it's got this giant anchor um, from an old uh, cruiser ship uh, from the war, and uh, it sits at the entrance to the to their new uh, tennis and pickleball and uh, I don't know their their kind of gaming amenity area. Which is really cool. So we we tailored the course after his passion of of um, history toward a World War II memorabilia, and the battlefield came out. So we're we're flanking it with some railroad ties that that uh, that are uh, situated in way that that kind of look like they're um, they could come from back in the 1940s. You know, maybe maybe you saw them in the battlefield and. They're not necessarily your traditional railroad tie usage and that you'd see in golf. Uh, and I, I had a little bit of experience in that because I did some similar stuff out at Tempanogos in Utah. So uh, the course should should be very should be a lot of fun to play and uh, with uh, with a lot of interest to it with an aesthetic that I think is going to be new and unique to the area for sure. Okay, so I'm a history major that was one of my majors and anyone that reads golf course industry or listens to our podcast knows that there probably isn't a bigger fan of short golf courses than myself uh, just sell our listeners on why uh courses like the battlefield and the one that you did at Tapaganos are so important right now and uh how important is it for facilities to be thinking about giving customers those options uh i think they're absolutely critical um so, like the 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 course at Shangri La, mm-hmm. you know, they already have twenty seven holes of regulation golf. So this is this is a course that's not all that different than what um, what they have up at the the seventeen hole little par three course up at Sand Valley. If anybody's ever played that, but it, it it'll attract a good golfer. But it's not about going out and shooting this great score necessarily. It's just about like creating these golf holes that are super interesting to look at, sometimes very challenging, but there's always an easier route to get there. And um, you you want to also attract the non golfer. I mean that's a big part of that's a big part of what I believe in. We we need to be growing the game. And uh, for years, par three courses were just dubbed like a beginner's golf course. And they were, they were so dumbed down that they didn't have any visual interest and they didn't have any real, a lot of them didn't have a lot of architectural merit or, or, or anything that says, Oh, I got to go back and play that again. So what, what we did out at Tempanogos and what we're doing at Shangri-La and, and other short courses that you'll see at, whether it's at Bandon or, Pinehurst or heck right out here they've got a little short course at out of Ballyneal in Colorado you want to you want to capture the 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 golfer that doesn't play all the time but they can go and and enjoy an experience a golfing experience that is still exciting and fun to see and creates some drama and interest that maybe there's a, there's there's a hole that maybe there's a hole that funnels down toward the pin and they have a chance of getting a hole in one or it could be their fourth chip shot and it still just funnels down toward the pen and it gets them a little bit of excitement um, along with uh, it, there has to be 
there has to be some aesthetic drama though to the golf course, some beauty and, and every hole you stand up on has to, has to ring true and just kind of say, you know, all right, on to my next adventure. So I, I kind of attribute it to, uh, this may sound silly guy, but when I, you know, when you're a kid and you're playing miniature golf and you're out with your folks and you cannot wait, you're so excited, you're kind of bursting and you cannot wait to see the next hole. And you put out in the second hole and you just run up to the third or the fourth or the fifth hole and you, you go see all the holes and you run back to mom and dad and you're just exploding with excitement. Oh my God, you can't wait. We're going to hit it through this tunnel or whatever it may be on that course. Um, if you, if you can create that kind of excitement in golf where they, they just can't wait to get to the next hole. I'm not talking clown's mouth and, and, and all of that, but I, I am talking about such incredible intrigue in what you're seeing that you just can't wait to see the next hole. That, that transforms playing golf. That's just fun to, to walk around, let alone if you're walking around with a, with a set of clubs on your shoulder. Uh, you're talking to that kid. He just happens to be 41 years old, six foot one, and runs home to a, a wife after playing those par three courses who could care less. <laughs> Me too. I'm the same way. Although she's starting to get into golf and uh, had a chance to take her to Forrest Richardson's Mountain Shadows when we were out west. And for uh, a beginning golfer to play a course like that, she doesn't realize how lucky she was. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, that that's uh, Forrest did a great job out there. Yeah. Um, that's another great, great par three golf experience. And he had some unique features out there too. He had a, a little breather hole. I forget what he called it, but one of his holes was... Oh, I think it was a betting hole. He called the it forced wager. Betting hole. The forced yeah, wager. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. So mm. th- no, those things are fun, and, mm. and and more of that needs to happen. Uh, I think in golf. How do you create variety and drama when all the holes are par threes? Oh well, that's what that's what we get. You know, that's what we get paid to do. <laughs> if, if we're not if we're not creative in our own mind, um, then then maybe somebody else should be doing those projects. I mean, we we need to be um, we need to be constantly dreaming up ideas of, uh, and, and a lot of that comes through education. Of quite frankly, most of it is studying the historic uh, golf architects from the past and uh, some of their great golf hole designs, um, and, and using those as inspiration moving forward. But even current day golf architects and some of the, whether it's, well, I mean, Pete Dye isn't, is no longer with us, sadly, but, uh, and, and nor is, uh, Mike Strantz, but both of those golf architects were absolute trendsetters in, in what they created. They created a, a version of golf that nobody had seen before. And that's why their courses were so incredibly popular. Um, and that's we need to be doing more of that. We need to be thinking outside the box and creating using our materials around us or the ground or or how we create golf holes, whether it's shaping or routing or the or the greens complexes and how the creativity of how those contours are set up and the ground game around them those are we need to be doing more of it uh, a- Andy Staples just opened up a a great uh part three course. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a PGA national. He took the, on the old 18 hole course, it was the player course. The the first two holes, one and 18, he turned those two holes. It was, uh, into a part three course and he called it the staple course. Um, 
and that is a lot of fun too. That he that's a good example of a short course that's intriguing and fun and really interesting green complexes with great contours and uh, you know you have to be in the right location to attack the pins, whether it's off the tee or if it's a short game shot. And there's a lot of creativity in your short game, you know, what, how you're going to play your short game shots. And that's, he did a good, he did a great job. There's a lot of really good short courses around. And part of our job is to study them, be aware of what's happening in the golf world and uh, take that knowledge along with our own creativity and deliver it to our clients and, something that keeps pushing that envelope uh, further and further so so the game remains interesting. Who knew when we had Andy on Tartan Talks number one that he'd have a course named after him? So I think uh, down the road we're going to have the At- Atkinson Alley somewhere. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't, maybe. You never know. <laughs> I give him a lot of grief about that. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you just named a golf course after yourself, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, truth, truth be told, he didn't. And he quickly reminds me, it's not the Staples course, it's the Staple. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, semantics, it's one letter off. <laughs> well, you mentioned the creative process, and uh, an early part of that process also uh, often involves sitting down at a desk with a computer or a pen and paper. Just what type of role does sketching play in golf course architecture here in 2022? And I know it's a topic you feel very passionate about. I do. Um, I, a lot of that comes from uh, my admiration toward Mike Strantz and what he meant to the golf course architecture world. And then what, as we just talked about, my relationship then with Forrest Fesler. So I, I was always an artistic kid um, growing up and I was able to draw and, and sketch and things like that. And I saw what Mike was doing and that inspired me to to try to, grow, to continue to to draw. And uh, so I, I sketch most of my uh, proposed improvements to existing courses or new holes, and I sketch them out for, um, quite frankly, the, the drawings are for me more than anything because um, it's part of my own, I don't know, my own uh, creative process of, of studying how bunkers may fit um, adjacent to greens or how green slopes may appear from tees and how, how the aesthetic looks from from the tee box or up near the green and, and how different parts of the green surface may unveil themselves to the golfer. Um, and I think that part of that mystery or, or unveiling is an important part of what we do. And, and with, when the golfer sees it for the first time on the tee box, um, I want to see what they're going to be seeing, and I want to be showing them what I think they're going to be seeing. So I draw it out, and I go through lots of iterations of, of how this whole may may finally come together. Um, this is a, a, after I've done things on plan and drawn them out on green size and shapes and strategies and all that. Then I then I start to sketch it. So when, once I found something that I'm really liking, then I I use that and I share it with the golf course builders uh, who are who are building it, the shapers that are out there. And I know that they find that uh, great because it, it's a it's a way for me to communicate my vision to them in a very realistic way. And oftentimes they'll use my sketches almost more than the plans to help build the vision. And it goes without saying also the, 
the clients are really important because then I'm able to communicate what my vision is to the clients and they can see it and something that they understand. So I, I think sketching is critically important uh, as a communication tool to shapers and, and members and, and boards and, and, and the like. But like I said at the beginning, I, I do it for me because it's part of how I get, uh, how I keep pushing myself to be as creative as I can. Do you save all your sketches? Are they in an office or at a room at home? I, I, I have sketches that go back probably 20 plus years. Some of them are just done with pencil and on bumwad on tracing paper. And oh, those are probably rolled up in a pile of drawings in my garage somewhere. You know, when the digital era came out, uh, now most of my sketches are saved digitally on on my hard drive somewhere. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I do. I, I save them and I go back and I look at them and uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I've recently thought it's interesting because I found it, you know, as the social media world is here, you know, I'll share some sketches from time to time on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and it's interesting the the response that I'll get from people um, out there across the golf architecture world, and uh, there's there's a lot of interest in those sketches. And I, um, so yes, I've I've started saving more and more of them, uh, and just just to share. I, I'm I'm thinking of starting a a, a version of I don't know if it's weekly or something, but some sort of a sketches with Kevin, kind of a social media platform where I just, maybe I archive sketches on a weekly basis and share those little animated sketches out on social media. Those are, these are just ideas I'm still trying, trying to dream up, but I've gotten a, a big, a big uh, positive feedback by a lot of those drawings that I do. Do it. I mean, we have a golf course architect. I'm sure you know him. Trey Kemp does golf course aerial of the day. Uh, you know, a weekly sketch thing yeah. would be be super cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I uh, I agree. I I'm uh, I just kind of was thinking about that idea here recently. Actually, a client of mine here mm. in the Denver area at the the club at Ravenna, mm. um, he said you should be posting these more often. You should do something like sketches with Kevin. And I'm like, well, that's a great idea, Steve. <laughs> there 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 was the idea. <laughs> Well, hopefully nobody listening to this picks off the idea before you do. So anyone listening, Kevin has this idea. <laughs> That's right. That's right. On a serious note, when you're looking at the final golf hole and the work is done and it's grown in, how closely does that visual resemble the visual that you sketched? Sometimes it's a near duplication. Um, I, would, I would say on average it's probably 70 to 80% accurate. There's always intangibles that you run into. Out in Oklahoma, we've run into it, just a ton of rock on that project, which has forced our hand to either, uh, oftentimes, to change the design concept a little bit. Otherwise, costs are going to get out of control of having to blast through rock. Um, so, but they're they're surprisingly accurate. Um, the the final vision to the sketch. Um, yeah. Okay, closer to home, uh, you've spent 18 years as a consulting architect at a course where you're the member. 
that you also happen to live on, Red Rocks Country Club. You mentioned it earlier in the podcast. How do you handle that dynamic? And are there any ever are there ever any back patio golf course architecture conversations with neighbors? <laughs> uh, yes, I have. I've been the consulting architect at Red Rocks Country Club for a long time, mm. teen years, and um, uh, it's it, it's a great experience. Um, it's it's a unique experience for sure. Uh, where you you're mixing your your craft and your passion with um, a club that you live at and uh, and and your your inner circle of friends. Um, so yes, there are there are there discussions about golf course architecture and patios of people's you know of my neighbors or the pet the back patio at the clubhouse. Absolutely. Um, and I'm enough of a junkie of golf course architecture. I dive head in and I share it all with them. I, I never get tired of talking about golf course architecture. I never get, t- especially when it's with your home group and your friends of your club. Um, if they have an interest in it, I, I sure like to share it. So we talk a lot about, a lot about, um, specifically ideas at Red Rocks, but they see other things that I'm working on and they have a lot of interest in it. There's, there's hardly a moment that I don't walk into the clubhouse where somebody isn't asking me about either what's next or why are we doing this versus that? Or, um, I love this idea that you just implemented on the new seventh green or or whatever it may be. So there's, uh, there's, I, I definitely get, get talked to a lot by a lot of members, but I, I love it. My door's always open to them. What part of the golf course do they ask about the most is there a specific area whether it be uh, bunkers tee position greens what do you get the most questions about well i mean as it as it goes i mean it's oftentimes whatever's in their backyard <laughs> whatever they're seeing out of their back deck yeah. um why is uh why, why was that tree taken out or what are they doing with that bunker or sometimes it's just a drainage improvement or it's a new tee box Sometimes it's, is this going to impact the safety of my home? Or sometimes it's, I love the fact that you opened up the view and I never was able to see this before. So oftentimes it's, oftentimes it's kind of more what they're seeing out of their back patio in their home, which we would all, we're all that way. You know, we're, we're all protective of our own views out of our own backyard. So that's, that's, I would guess that's more than half of it. But, you know, then the other half is, is just uh, relating to them how they play the golf course. So if we just got done, or we're just about done, rebuilding all of the greens and greenside bunkers out of Red Rocks, and it's going to be quite a transformation for the club, and uh, that, that'll that open this summer. Um, and uh, so there's been a lot of interest in the contours and the greens and what they're all viewing as what is going to be a new golfing experience. And they're right, it is going to be a new golfing experience out there. Um, so they'll, they'll relate back to whether it's, um, somebody playing the forward tees or the the middle tees or the back tees, they're relating to their game and how it's going to impact them, um, and their game or their handicap. So I, I try to live in their space and talk about how the hole is designed to play, whether it's for somebody that only hits a tee shot 150 yards or somebody that's hitting the tee shot 300. A bit further away from home, but not. Uh, too far away. Uh, how fun was the project that, and I know I'm going to butcher the name, Timpaganos in Provo, Utah. How, 
how, how enjoyable was it bringing that product to, to the city of Provo, Utah, for, for those residents? Oh, well, first of all, you did butcher the name. Guys. Yes. That's why I'm a writer, not a, not a professional uh, audio person. It, it, uh, <laughs> it's Tempanogos. Tem- uh, it's and you even right. told me off air, too. <laughs> I know. That's all right. It's, uh, it, it took me a while as well. But, um, well, that was an interesting project and a great project. Uh, the, that, when, when I was awarded that project, uh, Forrest Fesler was still alive and I was, I actually contacted him and I said, I, I want to take a little bit of Mike Strance and Forrest Fesler and some of the things that I've learned through you and some of the things that I've learned through studying Mike and had a little twist of that out at Tempanogos. And uh, the course actually at that time was called East Bay Golf Course for the city of Provo. It's been rebranded now to Tempanogos. So um, uh, sadly, Forrest uh, ended up uh, shortly thereafter uh, being diagnosed with cancer and uh, he he didn't make it but another maybe nine months and he passed away. So we were ever, we were never able to complete that together as a duo, but uh, we, he certainly was still in the back of my mind throughout the entire process. Um, so we, we stayed true to that vision of using some of the principles of Mike Strantz and, and whether it's, um, you know, large waste bunkers or sand bunkers or, or the native grass lines or the accent railroad ties, um, the, hidden features that are that I think that Mike is such a master at creating. We we tried to implement a lot of those pieces out there at Tempanogos. The course actually just started as a three-hole, adding three holes, and it, it ended up being a full golf course renovation when it was all said and done. Um, and it's it it is nothing like what it was when it when it uh, when I was first hired. The course is it's a 180 degree uh, difference in style, uh, golf architecture, uh, just the entire experience from when you enter the clubhouse to when you're done with the round. Um, the, the whole the whole experience is completely new and unique to the state of Utah and certainly to to the locals there in Provo. I hope they're gonna. So far, so far they're loving it. Um, I'm hearing nothing but great comments from the people that are playing it. And, um, their rounds have, uh, their rounds and their revenue as, well, they're as, as nearly doubled since it's opened. Uh, and that's, that's been really great to see, uh, to see such a success, not only from input, input from golfers, but also the financial side for the city of Provo. And it's not just an 18 hole golf course. There's also a par three course and a, putting course there yeah so you're right uh the 18 there's the 18 old golf course and then there's the the they had a driving range obviously and we lit the driving range um and then we also lit the uh they they had a seven hole executive course is what they they had before and we turned the seven hole executive course into a nine-hole par three course, and then we took some of, some of the other land as it was part of the executive course, and we created a uh, what's what's going to open this year as a putting course, 
and a kind of a kids course um, using this snag golf equipment where you you just you basically hit a you basically hit a it's like a tennis ball but you can only hit it about thirty yards and so we created a course using that specific snag equipment that's just just for people to learn how to play golf they're doing really interesting things within the city of Provo parks and rec department um, where they're they're opening doors to teaching people golf using this the idea is using the I, I think it's using the driving range and it will be using the putting course and the snag course as a part of their overall recreational amenity package and I, I'm far from the person to tell you exactly how that's going to work but it's going to open the opportunity for people that couldn't have otherwise afford to play golf to, to learn how to play golf at in an incredibly inexpensive price. It, in, in, in all grand scheme, it's, it's uh, I don't know, it probably like from what we'd be used to, like a 90% discount or something, very, very achievable to go and learn how to play golf. And I think that's great. I, I applaud them for for uh, trying to grow the game that way. So I'm trying to visualize it. You sent me some pictures. It looks awesome. So uh, in a way, you brought something inspired by Mike Strantz to the mountains, which has never been done. Uh, right, I guess. That's, um, I've never really thought of it that way, but you're right. I, I just more thought of it because of the teachings that I had learned through through Forrest and about Mike. I, um, I just I felt moved. And I, I, I just, I never put, I never thought about it that that way, guy. But you're exactly right. So a lot of people are moving to the Rockies and the Mountain West. How has the golf surge and the interest in your part of a, the country um, affected the industry in your part of the country? Have you uh, heard of courses wanting to do more? Or is there a need for new golf courses? Kind of explain the the scene the last two years in your part of the country as it relates to the golf surge. Well, yeah. I mean, there's uh, just by the growth of of um, the Denver area, or or anywhere out in the Rocky Mountain West. Not anywhere, but a lot of the major metropolitan areas. Those, the, the Boise's one of them. Salt Lake City, Provo. Those are growing like crazy. Mm-hmm. Phoenix certainly is. I mean, these areas are seeing unprecedented growth. Um, so just by the sheer nature of numbers, yeah, there's there's getting to be more of a need for golf. I, I can speak just just in the front range here in Colorado. Um, um, there's a, a couple of new golf courses that have opened up here recently, and I've just heard of a couple more that are, I can think of three more that are rumored to be on the books here in the Denver front range. Um, so, yeah, there's we're seeing new golf start to enter back into the equation, but still it's mostly a renovation business and um, mm-hmm. clubs are full. This is, and this is nationwide. I, I COVID has been uh COVID has actually been good for the golf industry. Um, despite all the bad that it's created around the world, um, it's opened, it's opened doors up to golf clubs because it's an outdoor safe activity to go do and clubs are clubs are as full as they've ever been and rounds are higher than they've ever been and that's created 
revenue that allows for so many clubs that couldn't afford to do um, improvements or even just they just had deferred maintenance items that they couldn't have afforded to do. They're, they're now able to do them. So we're seeing that certainly all over the Rocky Mountains. But I, I think that's nationwide. Don't you see that around around wherever you're traveling to, guys? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I just had Bill Bergen and Trip Davis on the, the podcast, and there are all sorts of opportunities there in the southeast and Texas and the part of the countries that they work in. It's a little bit slower here in the Midwest and the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast. It's not quite like uh, the Southeast with the level of activity, but there's still there's a lot going on in a lot of different places that wasn't going on yeah. six or seven years ago. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be as small as, um, for some clubs, uh, re-leveling tees or fixing some drainage issues or I mean heck it it could be it could be replacing carpet in the in the dining room right I mean however much I am um, all about golf architecture and I, I'm passionate about what I do I've worked in every aspect of the golf industry uh, from maintenance to golf construction to in a pro shop hell I drove a beverage cart as a kid I worked in a bag room I uh, I I've done everything to work kind of in, in the dining room, everything but that. So I, I see, I feel like I see golf a little bit more um, as a complete vision and, and understand that uh, however much I, I want to go and renovate the golf course, sometimes, sometimes the parking lot needs some attention <laughs> and sometimes you know, they, there's there are other things at the golf course that needs to be done. So this boom in golf that's happening is allowing so many courses to, to finally address some things that might not be as exciting to talk about. But, man, they're super they're, – they're very important for the ongoing operations of golf and the health of golf. Last thing here, uh, looking back on it, how glad are you that you didn't make the golf team at Nebraska and you were able to take – the career journey that you've taken. Oh my gosh, guy! I get down on my hands and knees, and I am so thankful of that. I, yeah, I, uh, I God was looking over me for sure. He was saying, "Kevin, you're going to go out there and shoot an 82 today," and that golf coach is going to say, "We don't have room for an 82 golfer on our golf team," and that turned me right into golf architect. I, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I still love the game, still passionate, still like to compete from time to time, but, uh, man, golf architecture is, it's, it is addictive. It's all I think about and it's, I'm, I love it. Yeah. I'm thankful every day. <laughs> well, Kevin, this was a, an awesome conversation. It is always a joy to speak with a person that is just as passionate as you are about your work and, uh, good luck on, your, your projects you have going on and good luck on your future projects. And it sounds like you, a lot of exciting things are happening in your world. Yeah, that's great guy. I appreciate it. I, um, I appreciate the time and love being on it. And I'll, uh, I'm sure I'll see you out on the golf course sometime near, maybe it's at an event at an ASGCA event or maybe it's up in your neck of the woods, but I, I really do appreciate the time guy. It's been a joy. Well, uh, right after I get out of our podcast studio, I'm going to go on the uh, internet and look for flights to Provo, Utah. You got me sold on making that trip. <laughs> Let me know. I'll go meet you out there. <laughs> Thanks for the time. All right. See you guys.